Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 132 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Healing Boundaries, an interview with Chris Kantopoulos. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, I've come to understand that if you're going to have a successful healing journey, you must learn how to set boundaries. And this guest was brilliant at setting firm boundaries on their healing journey. What Chris was able to do was set very firm boundaries for the people in their life. Chris was able to set very firm boundaries about what they would eat. And Chris was really firm about setting boundaries about their environment. In fact, they went on a sabbatical and they're no longer living in a building. So this was a really interesting and powerful element of this journey. So Rich, what I really found most interesting about Chris's Lyme disease journey is that their home was filled with mold and they were so willing to heal that they left their home and they actually started to feel better after leaving the toxic mold and becoming a nomad. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce to the Tick Bootcamp community, Chris Katopoulos. Hey, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're really so excited to have you. I mean, we've been uh, been fans of your Instagram for a long time, and uh, we were really hoping to get you onto our platform because we'd love to have you present uh, present your story in this format, and we're really uh, blessed to have you accept the, the invitation. So, Chris, can you share with our listeners um, where you're currently living? Uh, I'm currently living in a car <laughs> and a tent. I am in New Mexico right now getting a cargo van to stay in. So talk to us about this uh, nomadic experience that you're, uh, you're currently participating in. Well, so something that we just kind of talked about was the microbiome and immune disruptors and finding deeper ways to get healthy. Um, what's referred to as maybe an upstream health disruptor, a cause of why we're developing chronic Lyme and all these terrible symptoms. And so for me, what I realized is removing some really deeply super toxic environmental influences actually got rid of my symptoms. So that is why I am really separating myself from the super toxins and it's a process. So part of that is kind of finding your way um, in a nomadic sense. I, I think that's really exciting. In most cases, when we hear about people sort of going on that type of a journey, it's because of some spiritual experience, but you're actually doing it I guess in part because it's a spiritual experience, yeah. but in large part, it's a it's an experience that you're pursuing because living in a traditional environment was toxic to your healing. Absolutely, yeah. And that's something like, I think for a lot of people, they realize that some type of trauma or some type of spiritual experience really weaves into their biological illness. And so that's what I've realized too, is like kind of getting my brain back, you know, like many other Lyme patients, my neurological symptoms were severe. I had pretty much full on dementia with no recognition of that fact. And as I get my brain back, I also realize all this uh, spiritual healing that kind of comes along with it and getting mood stability and getting, you know, just kind of freedom from emotions that were weighing me down. So it, it's pretty amazing. So before we get to your transformation, I'd like to sort of walk mm -hmm. back and mm -hmm. talk about uh, where you grew up and what your educational experience was. So I grew up, I actually mostly grew up in North Carolina. Um, I moved around a couple times and I did play outside a lot. I think I was definitely bit by, <laughs> bitten by a tick a time or two. Um, and then I went up north for school. So I went to school in Connecticut, a small liberal arts school. And what did you study when you went to college? I studied gender studies, but it had, I took a lot of focus on the arts um, and the feminist movement and queer movements within the arts. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about your experience as a child in North Carolina and your outdoors experience. Um, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases during your childhood and your pre-college um, experience? I think, I had heard that ticks can give a person Lyme disease. I didn't know what Lyme disease was. It wasn't something that was discussed. I think it was like a sentence I'd heard maybe one time in school or something like that. We were not cognizant of it playing outside uh, at all, <laughs> at all. So 
yeah, I mean, I loved being outside. I think that was really good for me. It's just interesting. There's just like no awareness. Um, I want to say, especially in the South, but I'm sure in a lot of parts of the country, there's no awareness of Lyme disease. So just so just so I'm clear, so you were not either formally educated about ticks or tick diseases, and you did not get any social um, education from your family or from your community about avoiding ticks or what to do if you were bitten by a tick? No, not at all. So you just shared with us that you believe you were bitten by ticks on a couple of occasions. Do you ever recall having to remove a tick or a family member yeah. having to remove a tick from you? I, I mean, I remember... Uh, maybe it was about 10 and I felt like there was like a piece of yarn in my hair and I pulled it out and it was a tick and you know, there was no, nothing done about it whatsoever. So there was no doctor's appointment. There was no, uh, prophylactic treatment at all. You just pulled the tick out and went on, went on your way. Yep. So now as you were growing up, do you recall having any experiences, health experiences now that as you look back may have been, uh, Lyme related? Yeah. So I, I went through periods where I would say I got sick a lot and, um, you know, you don't necessarily know this before becoming a Lyme patient. Once you are, you realize there's a big viral component to everything. Like you're always having to fight out viruses. Actually something my Lyme doctor put me on was just an antiviral medication just to suppress viruses. So, um, I think I got a lot of viral things, a lot, a lot of fatigue, um, occasional mood instability and neck pain. And, and I've kind of realized that they're more connected. And I went to the doctor for some sort of extreme thing sometimes. Like I, um, I pinched something in my back when I was 14 for literally no reason. And I was down for a week. I, uh, went in multiple times to, I think urgent care because I felt like I couldn't breathe. And so that was just like a very interesting thing is like you want later, once I had formal treatment for Lyme, I realized that air hunger and rib pain are common symptoms. But back then, you know, there was, they said, well, your oxygen levels are fine and che just check me out, you know? So there was no uh, concept of any kind of prolonged chronic illness in me at the time. So let's talk about your, tick bite experience in 2017. Uh, you were you were bitten by a tick again in 2017. And after that tick bite, your 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 health declined pretty rapidly, correct? Yeah. So that one was interesting because I started realizing, I realized from that experience that it's really normal to break the rules, quote unquote, of Lyme disease because I felt the tick biting me, which is uncommon. It really hurt, which is also uncommon. I pulled it out of me immediately and I still got super sick from it, which, you know, medically they'll still say it takes 24 hours, but I knew that to not be a fact when I got immediately very sick. Well, now when you say that you, you pulled it out immediately, how do you know that you pulled it out immediately? Did you have the tick tested and did the tick test indicate that it hadn't been feeding on you for a long time? Or are you just assuming that's the case? A uh, good question. So I was actually hiking. I felt something land on the top of my head. It really, really hurt. And I yanked it and ran just thinking it could be a spider. It could be anything. And I actually didn't suspect Lyme um, for about three weeks after that. So you are uh, in the field. You, you found the sick biting you on the head. You pulled it out. And then ultimately you started to show your symptoms about three weeks later. So well Sorry, not to interrupt. No, no, please. I did have symptoms. Um, the fatigue was hitting me immediately and they progressed over the next three weeks, but I didn't suspect Lyme until lupus and other viruses had been ruled out. Okay. So I, I had a brain tumor <laughs> or had something else. So let's walk that back. So, so yeah. um, where were you hiking? Who were you hiking with? And how did this, this discovery of the tick in 2017 surface? So I was actually uh, at a lovely family reunion in the lovely Redwood Forest in California. And we were just all walking through the forest and that's when I felt it. Okay. So what, where were you in your life at that time? How old were you and what were you pursuing before you had that tick bite experience? Okay, so memory is a little tricky for me since Lyme, but I think that I was 28 or 2017 is only three years ago. So it'd have to have been 29. Um, and I was actually pursuing 
kind of two tracks in my life. I was acting and writing for film, just kind of breaking into it. And then I was also doing energy work and wellness work. So let's talk about your the acting element of your pursuit before we get to the wellness element. Sure. Um, what um, what brought you to the acting and writing um, elements of your uh, creativity and what types of things were you hoping to do had you succeeded on that path? Yeah, so I, I was actually very actory and dancing and performing as a child. And I realized that was my favorite thing. And I started in school plays in elementary and middle school. And then in high school, I had kind of put that aside and become very academic, um, which had some other reasons. But I think it was when I was 27, my cousin passed away and she was 15 and had committed suicide. And I think for me, that just created this shift of um, just hearing her spirit talk to me and say, like, why aren't you pursuing this thing that you really want to do? And so technically, you know, to be any artist or really any career and pursue it in your later 20s, people think is absolutely out of this world. But I just knew that I should do it. So talk about what you were specifically doing and how that was developing for you before you were bitten by the tick. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I continued to try to do it even while sick which is normal. But um, so actually some of the roles that I had worked up to, I actually got some small roles, but I was doing theater pretty regularly. I was in a play about every month in the Atlanta area. Um, I was on a couple TV shows. I mean, small ones that you wouldn't know <laughs> and um, had a small, small role in a film, a big studio film, and then did a lot of independent work too. So that, you know, Atlanta has a really thriving independent film scene, a really great community around it. And something that drew me to independent work was just being able to write and tell my story um, and to just have that really deep emotional um catharsis from sharing stories and community like that. So I, I also really appreciate your storytelling with the podcast from that perspective. So thank you. So, but, but Chris, talk to us about how now you're developing symptoms was now impacting your capacity to pursue this um, artistic or performing artistic career that you were uh, pursuing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's incredible. So I, started to notice that I couldn't drive. So I was, you know, I had been commuting to acting class uh, about an hour each way. And I was doing that multiple times a week. Like I was really treating that Atlanta acting scene like a professional training. And I started to realize I couldn't drive. And that, you know, was wild to me. Like I was like, literally probably putting myself and others in danger on the road just because I'd seen so many doctors and they all said nothing was wrong with me. And here I was behind the wheel, like totally incapacitated from neurological disease. I couldn't remember anything. I actually went through a phase that was really deep dimension. I couldn't even speak. Um, and that was intermittent throughout, I think, probably the first year and a half after the tick bite. So talk about, give us, put some more meat on that bone. For example, yeah. what, is, what does it mean not to be able to drive? Like, what, what couldn't you do? Uh, Chris Newby, for example, the author of, of, uh, of Bitten, shared with us that she couldn't even process the traffic light turning from red to green. She didn't know what that meant. Did you have that type of experience? Uh, mine was a little different. I would get intense kind of faintness and like a texture feeling in my brain of like sandpaper. And so it'd be kind of like I was passing out continually while driving. Um, and it was painful. Like it really hurt inside of my brain. So it's like one of those interesting things with Lyme because I also hurt a lot inside my bones. And those are things that people are like, well, what does that feel like outside of Lyme disease? We've never heard of these things. So now of course, as a performing artist, you have to have a memory. You have to remember your lines, right? Talk to us about how your, your brain and neurological symptoms um, were impacting your ability to serve as a performing artist. I mean, I'd say it became very close to impossible. It's interesting that I think part of the reason I kept pursuing it was just not, not having any real medical or social validation of my illness. So I was like, oh, why don't I just keep trying to do this? When in fact, um, it might've been better to just take care of myself. But yeah, I mean, just to have the 
the physical ability to stand and move around was gone. Um, the So let me, sorry, let me backtrack for a second. When I, when my illness first progressed, I was not getting out of bed or the couch and my mental um, incapacitation was so strong that I couldn't form sentences or thoughts. So I couldn't really text or reach out for help. I was living alone. So I would spend days just in a trance like state often, you know, kind of barely making it to the fridge or something once a day and just eating something cold. So it was pretty intense. So now you are also on this wellness path at the same time, interestingly. Um, how did um, how did the wellness path that you were pursuing um, help you or was the developing symptoms interfering with your ability to pursue the wellness path that you were you were sort of bilaterally on with your acting uh, path? Yeah, well, I, I think that I might have gotten far more sick if I didn't have a wellness path. But I think that the reason that I even had that path was because I had certain immune issues for a long time that were undiagnosed. So I think that I, you know, got sick from mold when I was in college and had all the symptoms, but had no idea what it was and had even seen doctors about it. And they didn't know what it was. And so I think that started to form like throughout my 20s when things weren't going well for me, you know, when I had fatigue and memory issues and body pain that had no explanation, I started to pursue wellness for myself and be like, oh my God, my life has totally changed from lifting weights, from eating differently, from meditation and spiritual practice. And I was like, wow, if my life can change, other people's lives can change too. And unfortunately, I just missed that whole environmental component, just having no understanding that what could actually be throwing me off so bad was living in a toxic building or a toxic, you know, an area that was just so disruptive to my immune system that I had, you know, all of a sudden developed a very restricted diet thinking it was, well, this is what, you know, paleo says, or this is what the whole 30 says, this is great. Um, but that might not have been necessary if I had been in a different environment. So that's interesting. So what it was also interesting is you were probably dealing with Lyme disease before your experience in 2017, and you were already on your healing journey, pursuing that through your wellness studies. And then yeah. you had this reinfection event, but thankfully you already had uh, intuitively begun the healing process, correct? Yes. So, I mean, unfortunately there was just so much information I didn't have about the specifics of Lyme disease. So I think that you know, really establishing brain health um, wasn't known to me. I was doing some anti-inflammatory things, and I think that did help with a really good foundation. But in general, having, you know, more acute Lyme and chronic Lyme and intense symptoms really taught me so much about, you know, what cellular health really needs and what what someone with chronic Lyme really needs. And that was just eye-opening. So Chris, how long did you have to go through your diagnostic journey after the tick bite in 2017 before you were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease? Well, so I was, I was kind of in a mad scramble because I thought that something was very deeply wrong with me and I might die very quickly. I um, was losing my hair at a very rapid rate, which is supremely unusual. Um, I, if you've seen my Instagram, you've seen that I have pictures of like the whole top of my head of hair being gone. And that happened, you know, just within a few months. So just, you know, you can imagine being 28 and all of a sudden your hair is just falling out in clumps and, you know, you can't get out of bed and you can't stand and you can't talk and you can't text and you can't look at a screen. Like when I say that I had dementia, I mean that like a conversation like this not only would have been something I couldn't manifest, but to even hear to other people talking would have been so difficult for my brain that I would have slid to the floor and maybe started crying. Like it, it was just really hard. Um, and now I think I might've forgotten your question. So well, let's talk about the, the, we're talking about that window between when you when you had your second yeah, bite in 2017 and now your diagnosis, um, how your symptoms were developing and, and what doctors did you treat with during that time? So I was actually, kind of searching like, okay, who should I see for the symptoms that I could draw out as being the most specific? So, you know, chronic fatigue isn't very specific. Body pain 
anus isn't specific, but I had a huge twitch in my face and Bell's palsy on the other side and then the hair falling out. So I was kind of Googling those things like, who should I go see? Should I go to the ER? Should I go to urgent care? Um, at the time I had an Obamacare a health plan and I couldn't see a primary care doctor for about six weeks with that. Like they were busy and booked out. So I was kind of like, okay, well, how do I get to a specialist? I have to go to urgent care to get a referral. And I was going to urgent care and they were running a ton of blood work. Um, and then, you know, someone said, well, maybe an infectious disease doctor. And if I, we can get into that for a second, that was probably one of the most traumatic things because he's one of those doctors that is an anti-Lyme doctor. I don't know if I'm sure you've heard about those through all of your interviews. So he um, was very immediately against me. He dismissed all of my symptoms as being psychological and imaginary. Uh, In reference to my hair loss, he suggested that I have trichotillomania. And then I said, well, wouldn't I be aware of it if I was pulling it out myself? And he was like, you could be doing it in your sleep. And I was like, well, then wouldn't it be in my bed and my pillow instead of all around my house? You know, so it was just a very painful conversation. So talk to us about what impact that doctor's gaslighting um, had on your emotional state. What, what did that do to your mindset? I mean, I was angry, but it didn't stop me because I knew that there was something wrong. So I was still pursuing other things, but I, you know, I was just in such a bad place physically that to have that happen to me mentally was very unhelpful. That's what what I'm asking you to focus on. Meaning I'm really happy to hear that you were angry because that suggests to me that you weren't accepting his, his suggestion that this was a psychological problem. Meaning did you ever begin to doubt whether or not you were physically ill and just in fact, emotionally ill the way he was suggesting you were? Fortunately, I didn't doubt it, but I I think part of that is being, you know, in my later twenties, having gone to therapy, having done meditation work and my wellness work, I was ready in a place where I was happy enough with myself. But I think that doctors like that are incredibly dangerous because I can only imagine if you were a child or a teenager or even any adult that hasn't had either the privilege or the resources to go through work where you really have a lot of confidence in your own beliefs you know, those doctors could make you really sick because they'll tell you to stop worrying about it, to just get on, you know, they'll put you on an opiate for the pain and then they'll put you on an antidepressant for your craziness or who knows what others. I mean, I'm sure you've had patients that have been on all kinds of psychiatric drugs for, I'm not have patients had interviewees that have been on all kinds of antipsychiatric drugs because the doctors will say there's nothing wrong with you. Oh, but in most cases, and, and I think you have to give yourself a lot more credit than you're giving yourself, because I don't think it's a function of age or experience. I think it's it's a function of the relationship that we traditionally have in this country with doctors. We, you know, we mm-hmm. see them as heroes. We see them as the people who are riding in on their white horses. And by the way, we respond very positively as patients to doctors who take that approach. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. at least emotionally, we respond positively but you're right. Um, it is very, very dangerous. And if you don't have the kind of confidence that you had and the, and the type of fortitude, um, you know, they will take you down that path you just outlined with treating you, treating your symptoms and uh, treating you psychiatrically. So thank God you were, um, you were as strong as you are. But let's talk about other types of people who were um, maybe uh, creating challenges for you um, with coming to a diagnosis. Were there any people in your life who were very much like this doctor saying to you, it's all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. You look great, Chris. Uh, I'd say it was actually everyone. Um, I, I wanna maybe say there were some exceptions in the sense that perhaps some people believed me, but they just couldn't help, which I understand. But, um, and my mom was kind. So it was just an amazing situation though, I think the acuteness wasn't really clear to people. So she was working during the week and drove down during the weekend to drive me to urgent care because I couldn't drive myself. Like that's the, that was the system as it was set up. I was just spending all day, not being able to get out of bed, not being able to think or speak or move and waiting for the weekend when my mom would drive me to urgent care and urgent care had no answers. Um, 
but to, to speak more directly on your question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the acting community where I had developed relationships with other actors and teachers and working with people, I think I would definitely hear, well, you look great. You must just be stressed because of course, you know, trying to break into acting is very stressful. And a lot of people do get very stressed and they're like, well, I've lost my hair before from stress or, you know, just things like that. Um, and I think friends, I think friends might've thought it was psychological to a degree. I think that uh, after I got sick, I was more uh, aware that there were a couple other people in my community that had Lyme disease and were not from Georgia. So in Georgia, there was just no understanding that uh, Lyme disease is very real. So the, those couple people were actually from up north. But yeah, for the most part, even the people that I think they felt bad, there wasn't anything set up for like, well, how can we help or what can we do? So how did it make you feel when the people in the acting community who you had developed relationships with were doubting whether or not you were in fact physically sick? It's, I do think that might've made me doubt myself to an extent even more than just a, you know, a one-off meeting with a doctor. Oh, sorry, let me plug in. We interrupt this broadcast. <laughs> it said low power, danger, danger. Um, so I think having people that had known me for years just kind of brush it off was a little bit scary. And I think, you know, that could say a lot about how society isn't really set up to recognize some of these illnesses that, you know, pop up and hit people at any age. Well, because it's more than just societal recognition of, of yeah. illness. It's really the, the, the nature of, of intimate relationships, right? I mean, you had intimate relationships with people who were doubting whether or not you were really sick. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, I'm sorry. And, and, and so tell us about, um, you know, how that impacted your ability to believe whether you were really sick and therefore pursue what you needed to pursue in order to heal. Well, I think part of it is it affected my mood a lot. Like I became depressed and, um, you know, I, I don't think my family really understood that I was sick, even though, like I said, my mom went out of her way to help me and they supported me when I couldn't work or couldn't fully function. Like they helped me move, but I didn't have help with, um, with things that might've really contributed to my health. Like I really had to figure it out for myself. And it, you know, I'm sure this is just very common um, in interviewing people that a lot of people can't remember their medication or can't remember their supplements, especially with Lyme. I mean, we have these really complicated protocols, you know, take this when you wake up, take this in an hour, take this 20 minutes before you eat, take this while you eat. Uh, take this 20 minutes after you eat, take this an hour, take this two hours after you eat. It's like throughout the day, you have this very complicated thing. Just taking your supplements and your pharmaceutical drugs is like a full-time job. Um, so just to get back to how that affected me, I mean, it made me scared. It made me scared I was going to die. It made me scared I was going to get more sick. Um, just because I really needed a lot more care and and then on top of that, I was being mocked. You know, I think there were uh, some people in my life that actually mocked me and laughed at me, you know, when I like couldn't push a button or I said, oh, well, I feel, you know, they said, well, if you can't drive, just take an Uber. And I'm like, well, I actually kind of feel scared when I'm in a very demented state to get into a car. I don't know if I'm getting into the right car. I don't know if I'm being driven to the right place. Uh you know, I was still trying to do my own grocery shopping and I would forget what I was doing in the store. So that was a big challenge. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was really dangerous. Like I think that I was very exposed and vulnerable to any kind of thing happening to me. So how many doctors did you see between the time that you were bitten by the tick and your symptoms developed until the time that you finally received your diagnosis? I think I wrote in the uh, questionnaire seven. So talk to us about the different doctors you saw and what types of diagnostic challenges you faced with the six doctors who didn't properly diagnose you. So 
uh, like I said, I was resorting to urgent care. So I think I went to urgent care thrice. Um, and after I went to the same place two weeks in a row and they were like, your blood work's coming back fine. I had already kind of figured out just from my own research that I was like, this must be related to that tick biting me. So I was like, you know what? I need to get doxycycline and rocephin. Well, I didn't know about rocephin at the time, but I was really determined to go into um, the next urgent care place and kind of give them some information that would lead them to treat me for Lyme. Okay, so let's talk about that. That's, that's, that's a really important point we have to stop and focus on. So okay, sure. you, you have the tick bite, you go, you go to two separate urgent care doctors, uh, they're telling you that there's nothing wrong with you, and you somehow come to the conclusion that you need to make sure that you're providing your next doctor with information about the tick bite. What triggered that decision share the tick bite information with the third doctor that you didn't share that information with the first two doctors? So doctors, the, the common policy, at least where I was living, was that they would give you antibiotics for Lyme just as a precaution, but you had to kind of convince them to do so. And they would still say, well, you don't have Lyme, but you know, two weeks of doxycycline is not going to hurt you. So here you go. So you have to really line up your evidence and say, I was bit, all these things happened to me. And then they're still not aware of the fact that there are plenty of false negatives on their basic little Lyme tests that they run. So, you know, what you kind of do when you go in is you basically convince them to give you the drugs, knowing that there's about a 50% chance your test is going to come back negative. So you don't want them to wait for the results. But Chris, let's talk about the first two experiences. Did oh, sorry. You in the first, no, no, we're, we're, the first two, first two urgent care doctors that you visited with, did you talk about the tech bite and were you tested for Lyme with those first two urgent care visits? So I, I actually didn't suspect I had Lyme myself at the time. So I didn't particularly discuss the tick bite. Like I said, I was focused on having a twitching in my face and rapid hair loss. And that was not indicated for Lyme, at least online. Uh, at least in the prominent medical literature, it was said, well, you know, maybe that's a brain tumor. There was the, there's not really much that creates random rapid hair loss and twitching. Um, so I was just in there very open minded, but she actually did run. Uh, is it the Elisa, the, the main basic uh, Lyme, like one panel test. And she also ran an ANA test. And, you know, so I don't even remember everything like Epstein-Barr. She just ran it kind of a gamut of blood work. And everything actually came back negative. And I went back to urgent care the next weekend uh, with my mom driving me. And that's when I got more resistance from the doctor because she said my blood work had come back negative. So even though my symptoms were actually progressing because there was negative uh, results on the blood work, she basically was refusing to treat me for anything at all. Um, and I was... Uh, originally given a rheumatology referral that once I called that referral, they said, because my ANA test had come back negative, there was nothing they could do for me. So I wasn't even directed to a rheumatologist. Um, so at the time I was then told to go see a dermatologist if I was quote unquote concerned about my hair loss, which really was not the concern, but I did go see the dermatologist and she gave me a steroid. Luckily I was like, Am I, <laughs> am I still making sense? You are okay. making sense, but unfortunately the steroids will suppress your immune Absolutely. system. So, so I, I took talk it, about that. So I took the, it was a topical and I, I only took it twice and I realized I felt worse. So I did stop because already I knew that something was wrong with me and I could tell that these doctors, even though most of them were women, they thought that my concern about my hair loss was cosmetic, um, which was really tragic to me, you know, cause I was like this, I have all these other symptoms. It's just, this is something I can prove physically. You know, you can't prove to someone else that your bones hurt or that you have fatigue or that you have dementia. All of those things could theoretically be acted out. But I was like, I could obviously prove that all this hair has fallen out of my head and that I'm twitching, or at least I try to prove it. So it's just weird. You know, it's weird to be a patient that is supremely ill and feeling like you have to prove it because doctors are turning you away. So were most of the doctors that you were treating with at that time female? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I, so the two urgent care doctors were the next urgent care doctor was a man. Uh, the dermatologist was a woman. Uh, the, when I called the rheumatology referral, I was turned away by a woman. Um, I'm trying to think I'm missing one. The infectious disease doctor was actually a man. And then I actually went to, uh, an alternative medicine center where I did see a doctor who is, I believe an integrative doctor. And he is actually also very unhelpful. Um, so it wasn't until I, you know, I finally found my Lyme doctor <laughs> that there was some support. Right. So I'm going to ask you to put on your gender studies hat in a minute, but let's, mm -hmm. let's stay with the, the, the point with you finally deciding that you had to ask your healthcare professionals to explore Lyme with you. It didn't come from the doctors, it came from you. What triggered that in you and how was that responded to by the doctors that you were seeing before you found your Lyme doctor? So it was actually through doing my own research. So, you know, and it's incredible that I was even quote unquote doing research at the state of illness, but you know, whatever I had a moment of clarity or a moment to spare, that's the only thing I would do. I would read articles, I would go online. And so I kind of realized it was quite unlikely I had a brain tumor. Um, and even if so, you know, the ways that it would manifest would be different. So I was like, wait a second, this is Lyme. And so that was just kind of my own figuring it out from, you know, it not being explained by anything else. And then looking at more symptoms of Lyme and realizing it could manifest in ways that were not commonly described. Um, so once I realized that I realized it was at a critical phase for me to get antibiotics. And that's when I decided to go into a, a, an urgent care appointment, which was actually my third, but I pretended that it was my first when I went in and I said, you know, I'm having all these Lyme symptoms. I just basically described it you know, and um, because the bite site was under my hair, I think there was some failure to recognize that there was a rash there. And there's also failure to recognize that an amorphous rash is just as likely for Lyme as a bullseye rash. So, you know, I, I didn't have um, what was medically recognized as too much of a diagnose, like an, an ability to make a diagnosis, but sorry, let me say this how this again. So Chris, did the doctor give you the antibiotics that you were seeking? So yeah, I think this was the third doctor and I actually got a shot of Recephin. Okay. Um, and in addition to the prescription doxycycline and I think actually I believe I was, I got doxycycline. No, that was my first time. So, so yeah, so I was doing just like a very minor antibiotic uh, oral protocol but that autobrostephan was really helpful. So you said you were also given a prescription for doxycycline. So how long, what was, how many milligrams were you taking a day? And for how long did you take the oral doxycycline? Oh man, I'm going to have to look up the milligrams, but he didn't give me a long prescription. So I think I was only able to get 12 days. Okay. So let's now put on the gender studies hat. And, and I want you to look back at the seven doctors that you saw. And yeah. do you believe that your gender played a role in the diagnostic delays that you had to face during your journey? I think it certainly did play a role. Um, and that honestly, uh, a man could have easily been treated the same way with the same symptoms. Cause I think what's being responded to is a sick energy that is vulnerable and that a doctor can kind of completely dominate. And it's still kind of tricky to realize, well, why is there this desire to, you know, talk over a patient's experience? Why is there this um, tendency toward treating physical symptoms as if they're only psychological but I do think that uh, patients who are men get a lot of that same treatment. And it's because it's still gendered because what it is, is that when you're vulnerable, you're being talked over, you're being suppressed. And I do think that um, it does happen more to women, but I think it also happens more when you have the neurological symptoms because there's vulnerability there. And that what doctors will respect more is if you're not vulnerable and if you actually go in with a lot of authority and dominance, which is hard to do when you have 
when you have a lot of neurological conditions. Okay, so that I'm not really sure on how you were answering my question. Do you believe that your gender played a role in delaying your uh, diagnosis or do you believe that it would have happened regardless of your gender? It definitely played a role. Okay, and did it play a role in delaying your diagnosis or not? Uh, yes, it did. So talk to us about that. What, what do you believe um, the dynamic was, the gender dynamic that resulted in you having a delay in your diagnosis? So yeah, to try to be more clear and sorry, I do still have neurological symptoms, but I think there's sort of two parts to it. I think there is something about assuming that someone who comes in with the appearance of your young woman Hence, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then I think it's also just the vulnerability. And I think because vulnerability is associated with being a woman and being feminine, that's also stamped on a bit too. So I think it's like those both parts. And do you think the female doctors that you treated with still perceived you as a vulnerable woman and therefore did not give you the same type of diagnostic treatment um, or diagnostic analysis that a man would have received? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, I think that, you know, to different degrees in each doctor, but certainly when I saw a dermatologist and I was like, you know, are you going to analyze the skin there to see what's happening? She was basically like, yeah, sure. As if she was doing me a favor. Okay. So now let's talk about your, your, final doctor and finally getting your diagnosis. So you would diagnose yourself by using Dr. Google as a vehicle for looking at symptoms that you were, that you were um, um, feeling. And when you, when you did your research and you identified all this symptomology, you came to the conclusion that you had Lyme disease and now you needed to make sure that you found a doctor that would understand that. And your experience was that the doctor simply didn't understand it. You did have somebody who was willing to give you antibiotics, but more than that, you really didn't get um, treatment for your Lyme disease until you found your Lyme literate doctor, correct? Correct. And, you know, just back on like the diagnosis part is interesting. Cause like, even when I was just suspecting like, Hey, is this Lyme? Will you analyze my skin or my blood or something? The second you say Lyme, a lot of doctors will immediately dismiss you as psychiatric. So they wouldn't even look at my body. They wouldn't even run basic kind of motor skills tests with me. They did not seek any form of analysis of what was going on with me. Well, so let's stay with it. That's really fascinating to me. So you knew that you had Lyme disease based on the research that you were doing and knowing what your symptoms were, but you felt that doctors were um, treating you even worse and, and, and coming to the conclusion that you are, you are mentally ill and not physically ill because you were suggesting that your research supported <laughs> that diagnosis. Yes, even, even having a recent tick bite, you know, I think it's, it's much harder for people who don't, but. Um, right. <laughs> but yeah, it had just had a tick bite. Um, but yeah, the doctors would. So when I went to the infectious disease doctor who was more adamantly anti-Lyme, he gave me a lecture about the quote unquote Lyme people that are pushing an agenda. And I was like, would you like to look at, and I was like, I'm not here with any agenda. Would you like to look at this site of hair loss that I think could have been transmitted from some sort of bug because something bit me? He was like, that won't be necessary. You have trichotillomania, you know? So it was kind of a weird thing that as being accused of having trichotillomania, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that had that been true, but I said, wouldn't I remember having that? You know, so it was kind of just a, a terrible interaction really. And there was another doctor that I think had also said, oh, I, it's not necessary to examine you. And I was like, well, why not? You know, just because I said this might be Lyme, they don't even want to examine me. So let's talk about finding the Lyme literate doctor. How did you find the Lyme literate doctor and how was your experience different with the Lyme literate doctor than the experience you had with the six doctors you treated with before that doctor? So I think it was actually through the ILADS website that I had submitted my state and gotten back that email list. Um, and so I it got her name in a list, 
but because of um, a lot of medical bureaucracy, it's complicated to work with, uh, you know, in Georgia, I think she's one of maybe a couple that does comprehensive Lyme treatment. And so I actually had to wait, I think at least another 20 days or so before I saw her. Um, But she was immediately very helpful. She immediately not only recognized the symptoms I was having, but was able to predict what symptoms I would have. And was also able to say things like, oh, are you having rib pain? And I was like, yes, I am. But I didn't realize that was part of this. So it was like, she was able to actually draw information from me that helps put together uh, a real profile of my health. So let's talk about how you got to the ILADS page and who is ILADS? So, because that's a, a really important part of this journey, right? You're Absolutely. doing your research and you're finding that doctors are not um, treating you um, appropriately, even though you may have Lyme disease. And in fact, they're actually treating you worse because you're asking them whether or not um, you, you have Lyme disease. And you now your research takes you to a place where you can find a Lyme literate doctor. Talk about that element of your journey with doing that research and finding the ILADS page. Well, so I, I started to realize there was information online about symptoms, like the symptoms I was having. Um, and that's what took me to ILADS. And so I just looked them up and ILADS is the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. And they help people find Lyme literate doctors. They collect together various articles from various parts of the country and the world where people have experienced these symptoms and these diseases. And it's really critical because um, like we've talked about, there are a lot of people out there who are actively against treatment for these conditions. So a game changer for you was finding the ILADS um, website and finding a Lyme literate doctor. Yeah, a huge game changer. So how did your now Lyme literate doctor that you found from ILADS change your treatment protocol and how did you respond to that physically? So I actually wasn't being treated at all, really. Um, And so, you know, thankfully, I began treatment is really how I would say like she was the first to really treat me. And it was amazing because I was just so unwell that the treatment did require a lot. And luckily, sorry, let me try to put this in a simpler sentence. Basically, as soon as I started treatment, I saw that my cognitive decline stopped. And that's what was really important to me because I was declining rapidly And I was scared that I wouldn't be able to come back. And a lot of people have actually gone through that. So when I got the antibiotic protocol, the supplement protocol, what started happening was that I could see that my body actually was able to start fighting back against the disease. So Chris, let's focus on that. What antibiotics were you given initially and what supplements were you given that allowed you to get to the point where you stopped declining cognitively? Okay. Now I wasn't expecting that question. I might have to pull it up. Ceftonir was a big one. Um, so I was immediately rotating three antibiotics and I'm sorry that. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need you to do research on that or, or even look it up. Just, just tell us what you remember, what you remember. What three yeah. antibiotics so, and what... so absolutely. So uh, I was basically taking two different antibiotics twice a day and then one once a day. And it was sort of the pulsing framework where, you know, for two weeks, you're going to do something, then you're going to phase one out and introduce another one. And I was put on, um, in terms of the supplements, it was definitely a lot of stuff I'd never heard of. And that also changed a lot throughout time, but then also just some basic vitamins were included. Um, And it was very overwhelming. I mean, immediately I had a cabinet full of drugs that I never had before. Like even as a wellness person, I was very simple. You know, I did herbal tea, I ate well. And all of a sudden this was just brand new to like understand that my illness actually required all of these things just to try to maintain a basic human function. Well, you were getting Um, better, right? I mean, as time went on, you were getting better. So talk about um, how your treatment changed and how your, your cognitive um, function increased and how you physically started to change. Okay. So yeah, just to be clear of where I started was really this incredibly demented state without moving or speaking. And with the treatment, I was regaining movement. I was regaining speech. Eventually I was regaining even exercise. 
Um, and it was to the point where I could be one of those people with quote unquote invisible illness and people would say, oh, you don't look sick. Um, so it was kind of interesting, but the treatment um, was complicated for sure. And as my doctor started to address different co-infections, different symptoms would pop up. And I know that, um, oh, sorry, let me take a break. <laughs> so, Chris, but while you're taking that break, let me ask you about the diagnosis. So did this doctor give you any testing or provide you with any testing that the prior doctors did not? Yeah, so we did the igenics testing, and that's normally how most people progress from the ELISA, and that one has about a 50% false negative rate. So then often patients will move on to igenics, which will, there are a couple variations, I believe, still, and they'll test for um, just a wider variety of antibodies. So when you finally took the igenics test, so, the, so your ELISA testing resulted in a negative diagnosis or no diagnosis, you took the igenics test, and what were you diagnosed with after the igenic test? I believe it was Babesia, Ehrlichia, Bartonella, just those three, even though it felt like I had more. <laughs> much more than anyone deserves, Chris. So, so um, now, did your Lyme liver doctor tell you that you should be attacking together one of these um, uh, co-infections and then move on to the other? Was that the strategy? Yeah. So basically, I think it was about basically how they are in the body because different co-infections have different uh, physical structures. So some are a spirochete, some live intracellular, some live extracellular. And so her strategy was to kind of pulse between different things just to help restore the body function kind of from inside out and protect, you know, the most important things, the heart and the brain, because there is a possibility with Lyme disease for, you know, heart failure and permanent mental dysfunction. So we were, you know, basically on a year and a half path, but I didn't know at what point would I begin to regain, um, you know, an abled life. So let's talk about the other things you were doing as you were beginning to now gain your physical health, right? Because you were also already on your wellness path before you met this doctor and actually before you even suffered your tick bite. And it sounds to me that you were so sick, physically sick, that you couldn't pursue any of the other wellness paths. As your physical health began to improve with the treatments that you were getting from your Lyme litter doctor, did you then begin to layer in other wellness tools to aid you in your healing? Well, I'd say that that really took a while. So even though, um, you know, some people say you can get over symptoms within six weeks or a couple months, I was still too ill to even meditate for probably about a year, you know, and that's something that I didn't expect because I couldn't sit up and I couldn't, um, breathe that easily. And I also couldn't focus. So that was all still affecting me, but something that was incredibly helpful was even small amounts of exercise. And that's very complicated with chronic illness. It's always like a dance because you say, okay, I can only do 10 leg lifts and that's all I can do for exercise. But if I were to even do that, it would help me. So even with uh, what's PEM, uh, post-exertion malaise, like even with uh, having exercise intolerance, exercising from the wellness perspective was incredibly helpful because the movement and what it did to my body overall had a gradually improving effect. So where are you today? How, how far along are you? Um, and how long did you have to treat with the Lyme litter doctor before you got to the point where you are today? So I worked with her, I think to the point where my infections were really in control, you know, they don't really leave the body. They're just in control. Um, but I was still having some strange symptoms, particularly the Bartonella symptoms, like the bone pain. And I was realizing that that could be triggered by inflammation. And so that's, you know, that's what drew me to where I am today to really just heal my immune system from the inside out, uh, to remove myself from environmental toxicity to the degree that it's even possible. So one of the things that I find really powerful about your story is, although you were really, really sick physically, 
you always had the proper mindset to continue to pursue a healing path. So talk to us about your mindset and how you were able to keep your mindset in a place that it needed to be so that you could go on your healing, your physical healing journey. Yeah, I think that that was definitely a blessing to just have the mindset to want to get better and to believe in it. And I think, you know, part of it's maybe a little bit of personality, just being independent and um, feeling like, okay, I'm in this and this is my job. I have to do this. I have to trust myself. And I think that probably befalls so many Lyme patients uh, who have had negative experiences with the medical establishment is we're responsible for ourselves to a really large degree. And we have to have just, we have to be motivated. We have to know that that's what we need to do for ourselves. But give us a little bit more about how you were able to stop all of the different doubters in your life. Meaning how did you set boundaries in your own mind so that your own mind wouldn't betray you? And how did you set boundaries for the people who are intimate and even the people who are a little bit further outside of your uh, intimate sphere, like doctors, so that they wouldn't stop you from believing that you were sick and pursuing this healing path? That's a great question. I created some distance. I think distance was really healing for me, even though it was at times not great, but having distance in the right circumstances is essential. So, you know, I could have potentially moved in with a family member who didn't believe in my illness or, you know, just gone the psychiatric route and treated myself that way. But I knew that wouldn't be best for me and best for my healing. I knew I had to treat myself on the biological level and I just had to pursue it. And so uh, part of that meant, you know, I continued to live alone for a lot uh, or I continued to live with roommates and, you know, that's, that's a weird path. It's a difficult path, but I think it did help me focus on my own needs. And had I tried to immerse myself in society as a very sick person, I do think that could have confused me more. And I do think that could have taken me off the healing path. So just from the standpoint of the boundaries, the first boundary that you needed to establish is you needed to live alone so that you could keep the more aggressive doubters from influencing your mindset. And the second thing you had to do is you sort of had to step out of participating in social activities so that you could stop those doubters from invading your mindset right. and healing. Yeah, and I, and I had to kind of, I think it's also the mental barrier, you know, just if things don't sit right with me, I just have to let them go. So, you know, if someone would say, well, I think you should do this, or I don't think it's this, you just have to know what you really feel and let everything else go. You were able to set physical boundaries for all of these people who you were concerned were going to create doubt because you were in a position where you could live by yourself. So you literally set up physical boundaries. Yeah, it, you know, that's not necessarily what I would have chosen, but just because I had this illness that people didn't believe in, it kind of became necessary. Okay, so let's, let's now talk about... Um, when you knew um, that it was important for you to set these boundaries so that you could go on your physical healing journey, when, when did that come to you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it was an epiphany in that way. I think it was just kind of an ongoing thing of continually facing some pushback and just continually rededicating to myself. And I do think part of the reason that, you know, so many of us are social media activists is because that's the only place we can go where, you know, we get the affirmation, we get the community and you get that sense of, yeah, this is real and more than one person is going through it. It's not just you. So let's talk about that. Did you turn to social media at that time to get support on your line journey? Not immediately. No, it actually took me a long time to be public about it. Um, I mean, it wasn't a secret. I would post about it, but it took some, a more neurological healing so that I could even form sentences to describe what was happening. And then B, I think you have to really be, you know, superhuman to explain this to people in a way that makes sense and that they understand because for so long, anything about illness could only be trusted coming from the medical community. Um, so you really have to kind of match that in your own skills and your own abilities uh, in order to be able to 
communicate with people. So now let's get to the point where you are today. And we began the podcast with you talking about this sort of stepping out of society. So you're on, a, you're on this sort of nomadic path where you're again setting boundaries that are necessary for you to take the next step in healing. So talk about, talk about where you are and what you're doing and why you're on this nomadic path. So um, I found a resource that was basically called mold avoidance. And through examining it more, I realized what they're talking about is avoiding super toxins of mold breaking down chemicals that we inhale. And it has a much bigger effect on me, at least, and many other people than the food we eat. You know, so many Lyme patients correct the food that they eat or uh, really food's a big one in addition to supplements. And then they do other physical things. And then what I realized, it's actually the inhaled air that had way more of an effect on me than my food or other physical things immediately around me. So why did you decide that you have to now move out of a physical building and be nomadic in order to be able to take this next step in your healing journey? Well, so it was really through experimentation. I mean, I had read uh, the stories of some other people that have done this, but what you really begin with if you are thinking about doing this is you kind of go on a sabbatical and you say, I'm going to separate myself from my environment and see what happens. And so I kind of saw that my body was getting rid of toxins. I saw that my Bartonella pain was uh, very low. Like I was still, you know, even three years after being treated for Lyme, you know, often in tears of over my bone pain and my fatigue. And that, you know, I'm not the only one. So what I realized in doing the sabbatical was that it was possible to get rid of some of these lingering pestering symptoms. So if I were going to sort of describe your journey and the successes you've had on your journey, it is just one where you're just constantly setting firm boundaries to the point where you're even setting environmental boundaries <laughs> for yourself so that you can heal it. Would that be a fair description of your journey? I love that. Um, yeah, I had not thought of it that way. Yes, it's a great description. So let's talk about uh, how you're different now as a consequence of going on this journey, because you are you know, a very, very powerful spirit. And I'd like to know how that became more apparent to you through this journey. Well, I mean, I really think that for one thing, it was kind of a prolonged near-death experience because not having any mental functioning, I don't know, I haven't really heard that many stories of people that have been there for a long, prolonged period of time and then come back and reintegrate into society. It's very strange. And so I think there's a lot for me, honestly, to still process with that on a spiritual level. I am, I think it draws me in more to listen to myself and to listen to a higher power because it's really an extraordinary experience. So talk about how this has also transformed you into now an activist in a way that I don't think you probably would have imagined prior to your tick disease journey. So what's inspired you to now step out of all of these sort of nomadic boundaries that you set for yourself and now become a social media activist where you're trying to help other people on their journeys? I think it's, you know, partially empathy and then partially just knowing what happened to me. So when when things were just so hard and there was really no resources, no hope. And I just had to kind of accept what little help I had. Um, I want to support other people who are in that place. Like I think with illness, it's very common to be in a lost place, particularly if you don't already have a really great social support team in your life. And even sometimes if you do, so I'm inspired to be a social media activist to help people not feel alone, to help connect people with resources, and that in the cases where someone's health can be transformed through treatment, I want them to have access to that. I think it's important. You know, sorry, and, go ahead. And you're an absolute blessing. And, and the way you're doing the work that you're doing is an absolute blessing to so many people. So I'm going to ask you our final question, which is, if somebody who you are in contact with on social media called you and asked you what they should do with the tick that was biting them on their leg, what advice would you give them so that they wouldn't have to go on the terrible journey that you've had to go on? So it's a lot. So I would say to 
you know, A, pull it out, save the tick, go to a doctor, get on the antibiotics, and then also start the supplements and find someone Lyme literate to work with. And then also, you know, plug in immediately to things like Tick Bootcamp podcast, where you can get information, support and resources, because it really is out there. And I think if you have the information, support and resources from the beginning, you are far less likely to decline into the kinds of physical and cognitive symptoms that so many of us get. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Chris Contopoulos. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Chris Contopoulos and their tick disease journey, please visit their Instagram page at chris.adrian underscore. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or our website. Thank you for listening.